What you need to know is that without the events of Acts 12, history of, the history of the church could have dramatically changed. Okay, uh, By the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter, who would you say was kind of the de facto leader of the church? Peter. Yeah, it was Peter. Well, he's been in jail before. In Acts 12, he's going to be thrown in jail again. But this time, it's much more serious. And things could have really been different if God didn't show up in Acts 12. We're going to talk about that today and how to apply that to our lives. You know, we have a world that has lots and lots of trouble coming to terms with the miraculous. Uh, even in uh, some faith communities, it's difficult to come to terms for some people with miracles among us, with the miraculous. We're going to kind of deal with that today. Now, the book of Acts is really kind of volume two of Dr. Luke's writing. He wrote, he'll, he'll, as he begins the book of Acts, he'll say, in my former book, in my former writing. So he's talking about the gospel of Luke, where we read probably the most detailed description of Jesus' birth, for instance. And so uh, as he begins to write the book of Acts, um, there's, there's great value in comparing some of those stories in Acts with the accounts of the Gospel of Luke, his, his former book. They're kind of meant to be read together. Well, Acts 12, where we're going to study today, rela- relates the last big uh, of the big stories of the book's presentation of what's going on in and around Jerusalem. Uh, you could argue it's going to be the last of kind of the major stories of what's going on in Peter's life as well. We'll see him again. We'll hear more about the Jerusalem church in Acts 15, which, by the way, is where we're going to be next week. But um, really, after chapter 12, the discussion and the attention and the focus of the book of Acts goes to a guy by the name of Paul, who used to be called Saul, who's taking the gospel all over the world. So uh, this is kind of a key chapter for us. Now, the actions in today's talk, what we're going to deal with in Acts 12, occur within the time frame of about 10 years or so after the uh, day of Pentecost. Now, how do we know that? Two ways we know that. Uh, In Acts 11.28, so if we're reading chapter 11 in in verse 28, it refers to a famine um, that was predicted uh, during the time of, uh, that is, is kind of uh, uh, talked about or referenced during the time of the reign of Emperor Claudius. He reigns from A.D. 41 to about 54, so we know it had to at least be 41 or so A.D. In our chapter, in verse 23, if you'll look there, um, there is a reference here to the death of Herod. Now, I'm going to talk about him in a little bit. This is Herod Agrippa I, Herod died, we know this, this death, which is kind of sudden, occurs in 44. So it's got to be somewhere between 41 and 44 that this kind of, these kind of events take place. Now by the time that we get to the action of today's lesson, the church had weathered the crises of the imprisonments of uh, um, uh, Peter and John, uh, some of the other disciples, it had, had uh, faced the death of Stephen. We read about that in chapter 6 and 7. It had expanded the reach of the gospel to Samaria and to Damascus. 
to the Gentiles in Caesarea. We talked about that a week or so ago. And uh, it had, the gospel had reached kind of the, uh, a, a, a huge center of the world in Antioch. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. The hub of Christian activities in Jerusalem and the home of many of the, most of the apostles. Uh, by the time we're dealing with chapter 12, um, these, these apostles are veteran leaders and teachers. They've told the story, they've told the story, they've told the story for 10 years and more. But, at, but Jerusalem is becoming less and less the hub of activity. Now, we're going to talk about three events that happen in chapter 12. The martyrdom, the arrest and execution of James. We're going to talk about that James in a little bit. Second, we're going to talk about the arrest and near execution of Peter. And then third, we'll talk just parenthetically about the death story of uh, prideful Herod Agrippa I, the king, uh, the magistrate over that area. Uh, now, let me talk just for a minute, because some will ask me, in fact, I had somebody ask me over the weekend, okay, which Herod is this? Let's talk about it a little bit. Herod the Great, okay, um, this is kind of the, the title given uh, often in history to the Herod that you and I meet in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, the one who had all the babies put to death. Um, we think of him as being despotic, and, and uh, uh, insecure, and he was. Well, there are sons then that take over pieces of his kingdom. One of those is known as uh, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas I. This would be the one who killed, um, uh, who killed John and was at Jesus' trial. It would be the Herod that we're talking about today. It would be his uncle. The Herod the Great would be this fellow's grandfather. Then um, Herod Agrippa I comes on the scene. That's who we're going to talk about today. And we'll meet another Herod Agrippa some, that we'll call Herod Agrippa II. That's this Herod's son who is a part of Paul's trial scene in the latter chapters of the book of Acts. That could have confused you. I hope it straightened it out just a little bit. So this is this one that we're going to talk about today is the... Uh, is the nephew, I'm sorry, he's the grandson of um, Herod the Great. We're going to see kind of what happens with him today. Now let's read a little bit, okay, about what happens here. It, get, it is getting really, really serious. It was serious enough when James and John, when uh, Peter and John got put in prison. It was serious enough when Stephen was martyred, causing lots of them to flee Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area except for the apostles. Now, one of the twelve, and we're going to see two of the twelve, are in serious, serious trouble. Let's, uh, Bob, if you don't mind, read the first five verses of, of uh, chapter 12. If you like stories of political intrigue, this is one, okay? 
Herod's in trouble with his subjects. Okay? Why that is, is predicted in 1128. Somebody go back just a page and read 1128. The guy there mentioned, his name is, he's a prophet by the name of Agabus. Okay, now, this is predicted, this famine's going to take place, and it has come to pass, in the er it's now in the early A.D. 40s, and Herod is in trouble with his subjects. Why? Because they're hungry. Okay? So what does he do? He tries to divert their attention from this famine and this problem by having one of the disciples put to death. Okay, let's make sure we understand then who this is. As a result then, verse 2, James becomes the first among the apostles to be martyred. Now, let's look over. Go with me, okay? Everybody turn back a few pages to Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 3. So just go back two or three books to Mark 3. And I want to read the list, kind of a complete list of the apostles. He'll be mentioned here. I want to be sure we catch the right one. And Luke does a good job of helping us identify him here in, in, um, in the uh, book of Acts. I want us to be sure we can answer which James is this. So let's go to 3, and I'm going to begin reading in 16. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means son of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who, who betrayed him. Now, in that list, there are two Jameses. Which one is this? It's the first one. It is the one that, now, I want you to catch how serious this is. When Jesus is discipling the disciples, he spends the majority of his time with 12 of them. And then he spends a, a more uh, ordinate amount of time with just three of them. Do you remember who the three were? Peter, James, and John. This is that James. He's a member of the inner circle of Jesus' apostles. This is getting really, really serious. Okay? Um, he, it's one thing... I don't want to downplay the death of Stephen at all, but it's one thing to martyr a layperson. It's another one, another thing here to put to death one of the twelve. So he has him, Herod has him arrested, puts him to death, and, um, and the church is chilled at this, obviously. Right here in Jerusalem where they're still kind of gathered. James is put to death. Now, by the way, there is a third James in the New Testament. Be sure that we don't mistake him. Okay, there's James, the son of Thaddeus, which is mentioned in the list 12. There's this James, who is the, the, one of the sons of thunder, the brother of John, who wrote the book of John. And then at the, toward the end of your New Testament is the book of James. That's written by another James. Who is he? He's the half-brother of Jesus. Why do I say he's his half-brother? They shared a mama. 
But Jesus' daddy was God. Yeah, okay, all right. Now, you kind of get that. All right. Now, what was the reaction to James' death? And this is probably not a good word. I, I, I use the word detractors here. The detractors of the church, those who are working against the church's survival in kind of the religious community of, of the Jews. I didn't want to use the word enemies, but that's really a, an appropriate word here. What was the reaction to James's death in verse 3 of the church's detractors? In fact, it caused popularity with Herod because they put one of the disciples to death. Evidently, what Herod set about to do to divert the attention from the famine worked. And those who were um, uh, in, in um, the community around there um, who were part of kind of uh, trying to stamp out the church just loved what happened. Hey, they put one of, one of the disciples to death. Now, um, look back at chapter 11 just for a second. I want us to look at a couple of verses that kind of tell us the reason why they were so excited about this. Uh, I'm going to go to 11, uh, 20, and I'm going to read 20 and then 26. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, the Jews, the, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So you and I kind of know a little bit about this story. Um, if you read on down to verse 26, and when he had found him, he's talking about Paul here, then being called Saul, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So now what you need to understand here is that Gentiles are being brought into the fold of what was previously a Jewish cult called the Way. It was over there in Antioch, in Asia Minor, where it was over there where actually Christians first started being called Christians. And so there was this conflict that took place that fueled this fire, if you will, between the church and the synagogue. Okay. The church was flourishing, uh, partially because Gentiles were coming into the church by the thousands, and the synagogue hated that. And so they're going to be really pleased here at James's death. Now, so in verse 4, what does he do? What does Herod do? He has Peter arrested. Think of this in terms of politics. Hey, the death of James worked. I'm going to arrest Peter. Then I'll really be popular. My approval numbers will go through the roof. Because he's kind of the head guy, right? Kind of leading this band of believers. It, it, it very well, folks, could have been as simple as that. So he has Peter arrested and puts him in jail. And in verse 4... He puts him in a prison. I, I read some stuff about this. This is going to be a secure facility guarded by soldiers and backups to the soldiers with backups to the backups to the soldiers with backups to the backups to the backups of the soldiers, okay? It, within a military conflict, he's going to be completely secure from rescue. That's the word that goes in the blank, okay? 
okay? Completely secure from rescue. Herod is protecting this because he doesn't want anything going sideways on this deal. Now, what can we assume? Because we've got to live here for just a minute. What can we assume in the context of James's arrest and death? What can we assume is getting ready to happen to Peter? The same thing. What does Peter think is getting ready to happen to him? The same thing. What does the church think is getting ready to happen to Peter? The same thing. And Herod ensures it by making Peter's cell, his prison, really, 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 really secure. Look at verse 5. I want to read verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison... But what was going on while that happened? The church prayed. And they didn't just pray. They prayed, and here's a word, fervent. They prayed a fervent prayer. They prayed fervently. This is very, very important here. The church prayed in fear that Peter also would be murdered. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, in fact, let's do that. Let's go back to chapter 5 just for a minute. Somebody read 17 down through 20 from chapter 5. Peter's, this isn't the first time Peter's been in prison. Somebody read 17 down through 20 from verse chapter Ten years earlier, Peter and John had been put in prison before, and they were released. But i got to tell you, in that ten years, things have gotten more dangerous. Peter is much more well-known. His testimony is much more damaging to the, to the um, religious elite of the day. And it, in that case, since it threatens the, the peace of Rome, it's much more threatening to Herod as well. So he's in jail, awaiting execution, and the church is praying. And the Bible says, and I don't know if your, your translation has another word. My translation uses the word earnestly prayed. Anybody have a different word there? Yes. They prayed without ceasing. Okay, now I like that. Because it gives kind of an indication of how they prayed. Kind of the mode in which they were praying. They're praying around the clock for Peter's release. I think, okay, sanctified thoughts here, okay. You can't see this in the Bible. But I wonder if they're praying that he doesn't deny Christ again. In order to save his neck. I don't know. But they're praying. They're praying that he will be strong. But they're pretty sure he's going to die. Okay, I've got to ask the question here. What does it mean to pray in earnest? To, I'm sorry? What did you say? 
it, I knew it was L. It came from Ellie's direction, so I knew it, he had something to do with it. All right, it was Siri talking to us. Okay, uh, what does it mean to fervently pray? Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an illustration from my life. I, I met years ago. Okay, 30 years ago, I met, I met a lady uh, who my church um, in Eastern Kentucky called Aunt Lottie. She, her name was Lottie Barber. She was about five feet tall, and um, when I first met her, I would go to the ladies' quilting circle on Tuesday morning just to say hello to the girls, and frankly, as a 30-year-old, to see if they had anything to eat, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had a cup of coffee, but I really wanted something else. And, uh, and, I'd go, and the girls always had something with them, and, and uh, these were retired ladies, and they met every week in our church to quilt. And they made these wonderful quilts, and they sold them in the Missions Bazaar in the, in the fall, this time of year, when they, they had their big bazaar in the, in, the, in the fall of the year. Well, Aunt Lottie would come to this. Everybody called her Aunt Lottie, is, although I'm not sure whose aunt she was, but they all called her Aunt Lottie. Everybody felt a connection with her. And when I first met her, she was just a young lady of like 95. <laughs> and and by, the time, um, by the time I left that area of the country, uh, she was 103, and I would visit her in her home because she was no longer able to get out. And I would visit her, and she would plead with me. She'd say, you know, I, find it, I was thinking about this story this morning. I'm thinking, how much deference did these great people of faith give to a young preacher who didn't know come here from Sikkim? But she would call me Pastor Steve or Brother Steve. And, you know, I was a third of her age. And she'd say to me, uh, she, could, she could barely see, she was nearly blind, and she could barely hear. And I would get really down close to her bed. I would kind of usually have to kneel to kind of get her attention. She, but she knew it was me, and she'd say, Brother Steve, why does the Lord leave me, leave me here? Why does the Lord leave me here? She, was, you know, she had outlived her husband, and uh, some of her children had died. And, you know, and they were in their 70s. I mean, you know. But she was struggling with, why am I still here? And I would say to her something like, Aunt Lottie, I need you here. Because I know you pray for me every day. I know you pray for our church every day. Now this was a church that, that was a church of 400 or so. Uh, uh, it had had a, a wonderful history of faith and faithful preaching. There were great, great names that some of you in this room would recognize and most of you would not. But they were great uh, um, fathers of faith that I'd heard about all my life and got to meet in some of those years because they bring them back in to preach. And uh, it was just such great faith building for me to meet these giants of faith uh, like Willard Wilcox and Herschel Rice and, and Hillary Rice and, you know, some of these, anyway, people that were uh, amazing people of faith. And the story is told that, that probably 15 years or so before I landed there, in one of these days when one of these giants of faith was, was the pastor there, that they called a meeting at, at that church which was downtown. When I, when I was there, it was kind of out in the suburbs of this little town we lived in. But when, when I would, 15 years or so before, they called a meeting of the church because there was, um, there was a, a pretty severe um, a drought in the town. Now, what I find interesting is they're right on the Ohio River, so you know they got access to water. And I also read the stories from 1914 or so when there was a great flood in that town. So, but for some reason, they were very concerned. The, the agrarian community was very concerned about a drought. So our church there, 15 years or so before I got there, came probably in the 60s together to pray for rain. 
It had gotten that bad. How bad do things have to get in your life before you start praying about them? Well, it had in Ashland, Kentucky. And so the church gathered to pray. They scheduled this prayer meeting. They put it in the paper. Guess what? It did rain, but I want, to, want you to know something. The only person who showed up to the meeting with an umbrella was Aunt Lottie. <laughs> she became a hero of faith partially because of that anecdotal story, and it's a true story. How, when you pray, do you pray expecting an answer? That may be the answer to fervency. That may be an answer to earnestness. I want to submit to you that the church was praying day and night, but they weren't praying expectantly. Let's read on, okay? Can we pick it up in verse 6? Cindy, would you mind read 6 down to about 11? Okay, let's review for just a second. What's going on in the story? It is zero hour before Peter's execution. Evidently, they fed him a high-carb last meal. <laughs> I can't imagine being asleep. But Peter was sound asleep. As, by the way, everybody else in the prison area was, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, I, what I find kind of remarkable about this scene is in the zero hour before Peter's execution, he is sound asleep. And then what happens is that an angel comes in that place, and the angel's words convey to Peter the need for urgency. By the way, there are angels that do that stuff all through the book of Acts. Look at 16.26. Suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison of the house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. This is a story about Paul and Silas. Evidently, chains don't mean a whole lot in the first century if, you, if you're a servant of God. And that's kind of what happened here. The cell is illuminated by what? By the presence of an angel. Now, how cool is this? You've got to think about this. When Peter finally rubs his eyes and wakes up, there's a shaft of light in his cell, which is a very dark place. This is not a gas lamp burning in the hallway. This is not somebody's torch that they have lit. 
This is a shaft of light sent from the halls of heaven to illuminate this angel. And when Peter wakes up, it's like, oh. uh, a, a startling light. Now here's what I want to say to you before we continue for just a minute. I don't know what kind of bondage you are now in or have ever been in. But chains are never really a problem for God. Can I tell you that? Now they've been a problem for me, but they've never really been a problem for him. Am I making this way too simple? Whatever is keeping me bound up is not really an issue for my God. It's only kind of an issue for me. And I don't want to simplify that or, or, or um, negate the problems that many of us face trying to get out of, um, Teresa, to use your terminology on Thursday night, some hang-up or habit or hurt. But what I want you to know is that none of these chains, none of, these, none of this bondage is too much for God. And so the, the angel simply touches him on the shoulder. He says, wake up. And as he does so, the chains are gone. Now, in verse 8, it looks, it seems to me, as Peter reacts to this, he's still drowsy kind of at this point. He trusts the angel but he probably doesn't know completely what's happening. And he's beginning to whistle a tune, okay, in the cell, all right? He's beginning to whistle. <whistles> Trust and obey, for there's no other way, okay? <laughs> Don't you think? He's beginning to whistle, trust and obey. Okay, I'm going to obey this guy even though I don't know what in the world is going on here. And so in verse 9, he's obedient in what he thinks at that point. It's interesting, we get the detail here in verse 9 that Peter still thinks he's dreaming. He still thinks he's seeing a vision. And so, but he's going to be obedient to it. Peter's got a little experience of vision. Remember the sheet? You know, with all the critters in it. Bob? You know, it's interesting. Uh, Here's my impression in context. Guards are still sleeping. Guards are still sleeping. But they're bathed in this shaft of light too. The the angel had to wake Peter up. Get up, man. All right? The angel's words to Peter convey this need for urgency back in verse 7. But he's still drowsy and he's obedient anyway. Now, one of the things I've got to recognize here is that even though God will deliver, I may have to cooperate a little bit before I can receive my miracle. Part of your miracle may depend on your acceptance of your role in it. You know? I don't want to, I don't want to demiracalize this at all. I read some commentators and I want to throw the book out the window because it'll It'll share a story from the Bible that's a clear miracle and it will try to de-miracleize it. It'll try to mythologize it. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying, it seems like to me, in most of the miracles I read about in the Bible, some, some human has a role to play 
as well. So that God can do what God needs to do. What Peter had to do here was wake up, get up, put on your clothes, we're going. And he did. As he whistled, trust and obey. All right? Now, as you read verse 10, let me read it. What do you think is the most kind of startling or remarkable part of this miracle? I'm going to read, you've already seen some of it, but I'm going to read a little bit from verse 10 here before we, we got a couple minutes here. So, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel departed from them. Okay, so we've got, um, we've got all these things happening, including the angel. What, what's the most remarkable part of it that you, that you would say? Do what? No one else has seen him. I, how did they slip out with him being noticed? I mean, it's probably a nine-foot guy he's walking with, yeah, with wings. <laughs> the angel has appeared to him. Okay, what else? What's remarkable to you? You know what I think of? I think of going to Homeland and you step on that mat and this would have been locked and some Chamberlain would have been the only person with a key. And yet, as they walk, you know? Anybody else? I'm sorry? The prayers are answered. That's certainly part of it. So what's going on here is the appearance of an angel, the dropping of chains from Peter's wrists, the guards are kept from awaking, the irons, iron gates opening by itself. Um, I, I get to thinking about this angel could have just beamed Peter out of there. That happens in other places. We read about it with Philip in chapter 8 where Peter was in one, uh, Philip was in one place and all of a sudden he was in another place. He could have done that. That didn't happen. He had to kind of cooperate here. And by verse 11, then what we read, what Cindy read just a minute ago, Peter's life has been saved. Now, I want us to look ahead just a little bit. Again, I'll remind you, we'll be in verse 15 next week. But after this, look at verse 17. Motion of sin to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. So Peter leaves Jerusalem. He doesn't want to put them in greater peril. So he leaves Jerusalem. Um, if you read verse 19, the guards that were supposed to be guarding him were put to death. Okay? Kind of what happened in those days. Herod was not happy that Peter got let go. What happened to Herod himself? You can read about that from verse 20 to verse 25. What happens to Herod? Herod kind of forgets that he's not all that after all. And kind of claims that he's got the voice of a... They, there's a big gathering where, where they're saying, man, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And Herod dies on the spot. Wow. God is showing up big time here. Peter's going to live, if I've got it right, Peter's going to live about 20 more years. This was not his last day. But in the meantime, the church who is fervently, earnestly praying is gathered at the home of a place uh, of, of a kind of a, a, a guy by the name of Mark. You ever heard of him? It says John Mark in your Bible. This is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's at his, they're, they go to, they're gathered at his mother's house, who is a great person of faith. And I want us to look here just for a minute. Look down at verse 12, and I want to read just a couple of verses here. This is 12, 12. 
And when he realized this, he went to, he, he, the angel goes away. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called, called Mark. Many were gathered there and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate. Now, what are they praying for? They're praying for what is knocking at the door. Okay, got that? They're praying for Peter to be released. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. Then they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter kept knocking until they opened the door. Now, they're gathered at Mark's house. They're praying for Peter's release. In 12.15 that I just read, what does it mean that they think that Rhoda saw Peter's angel? Huh? I think he's dead. What are they praying for? Peter's release. What are they praying for? Peter's safety. What are they praying for? Peter's life to be spared. What do they think? They think he's already dead. That makes me crazy to think about. Because they think, it, and he is, let me in out here, will you? The angel is gone. I'm in peril here. Let me in. And they recognize his voice and say, it's got to be his angel because he's gone. He's out of here. Isn't it interesting? My dad used to sing an old gospel song. Prayer is the key to heaven, but faith unlocks the door. I'm wanting to say, guys, open the door. I heard Larnell Harris sing a song years ago uh, about this story called Rhoda, Open the Door. <laughs> uh, it's a great gospel song. Rhoda, open the door. It's time to open the door. Now here's the, here's the question I want to ask leave you with here. What are you praying for? What are you praying for? Are you praying for somebody's spiritual freedom? Are you praying for somebody to be released from some kind of bondage, some kind of chain? What I want to incite in you or what I want to encourage in you is the kind of faith that wouldn't leave the door closed on the answer to that while you're still praying for that release. You know? And I want to say to you, as Peter undoubtedly must have said in the dark hours of this night when he has just been in prison, I want to say to you, what Peter undoubtedly said, Rhoda, open the door. Open the door. I don't want my lack of cooperation with God's spirit and activity in my life to keep me from experiencing a miracle. A clear miracle. So would you do this with me? Would you ask God today, while you're still thinking about this, maybe while you're meditating at the beginning of the next service, whatever, would you ask him, Lord, is there something that I'm doing that has closed the door to the miracle that you really want to accomplish in my life? Is there a way that I'm still kind of in bond? I'm still in chains. I'm not in chains because you freed me, but I'm kind of acting like it. Is there a miracle you want to do in my life and the only thing you're waiting for is for me to just kind of open the door? I'm going to be praying this prayer this week.
Would you pray it with me? And we'll be in chapter 15, and we'll see a really important decision among the church. Have a great Sunday.